0: Welcome to On Fighting in Thailand, the best news and analysis covering the economics and infrastructure of Muay Thai. I'm Matt Lucas, journalist, commentator, next ex-Muay Thai fighter. Make stronger fighters, make stronger people. So in this episode, we talked to Patrick Rivera of Valor Training Center, also the Muay Thai business community and academy, and he's also had this summit. He's a very important person to me. He's helped this podcast get going. He's been a real big supporter for me in a lot of my projects. So it's really great that I was able to talk to him about the business and about the sport in this episode. We touch on a lot of different things that I think are really valuable. One of the big things uh, is about the psychology of learning and how we teach people and what we get from them when we teach them. So without further ado, the interview with Patrick. So thank you, Patrick, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you taking your time out. I know you're a busy guy. How are you doing today, though?
1: I am doing excellent. It's about midnight out here in California right now, and it was a really, really busy day. It's been a busy, busy week. It's been a busy, busy month. It's been a crazy pivoting year, but I'm doing awesome. Thank you, and thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, one of the big reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is because you are so busy with the business of Muay Thai. But let's start a little bit more towards your roots with Valor. You now have four locations um, and potentially opening up more spots. How are you able to manage so many gyms, and what sort of systems go into place with running gyms like this?
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. It's crazy, crazy that you ask me that because right before we just started this podcast and maybe that's why uh, I, maybe I cut out temporarily. I clicked on an email that was just sent to me tonight about another opportunity because all these opportunities are popping up. And so that we may even be working on a fifth gym, uh, believe it or not. We haven't even opened up our fourth one yet. So, um, you know, for me, it's just recognizing openings, recognizing and being ready for opportunities as they arise. And, and a lot of people, um, they constantly look for, for four opportunities, but because they're searching so hard, or maybe they've got a certain idea of what that should look like, or maybe they don't even have any idea of what it, an opportunity looks like, they miss it completely. And I've, I've been in a position uh, over the years to be able to Be fortunate enough to be educated to recognize when when really once in a lifetime opportunities present themselves. And in my case, it's happened five times. So, (laughs) or maybe even more. You know. So so yeah. To answer your question, um, to answer your question, how do I manage it? Well, one, you know, you have to have systems. You have to have the the systems in place. You have to have uh, an awesome staff in place. I, I really. Really, really am thankful because I've been blessed to have a lot of great people that have worked with me over the years. And although, you know, the turnover has been been fairly high. Now, again, we've been biz in business over ten years now. Uh, it, you know, what I'm recognizing in the last year during COVID is that I have to spend more time developing my team, developing my staff, developing my systems, developing protocol, and that's what I've been really pivoting on in the last year, and that has allowed me to then be able to implement these systems in multiple branches and scale and grow, which will allow us to continue to scale and grow now that these systems and processes are in place. That's a very long-winded answer, so I apologize.
0: (laughs) No, no, it totally made sense. Can you tell me maybe something specifically you're doing to sort of develop your staff
1: well, you know, here's the thing. So, you know, I'm also a dad, right? So I'm really blessed to have three beautiful kids. I've got a, a 19-year-old daughter. She's 18. She's going to be 19 later on this year and a, and a, a, an 11-year-old and a, and, and an 8-year-old boy. And, you know, I'm really, really lucky. And what, One of the things that, you know, I recognize um, when I was growing up in a Filipino household, you know, my dad was a, a Filipino immigrant and you know, he was old school, and I think a lot of parents, regardless of the cultures, are the same way. They they'll they'll yell at you, you know, and expect you to do something their way, but they never actually showed you how to do it. They 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 act as if you know you can read their mind, and then you get punished because you didn't do it their way. Again, even though they didn't show you what to do, and you know, I uh, uh, and I realized that also as a coach that. I would yell at people. I would yell at my athletes and say, look, keep your damn hands up. And I would, you know, use maybe stronger language than that or whatever. And I think we've all been there as coaches and we'd get frustrated, but we were yelling at him and telling them, but we weren't showing them or I wasn't showing them. And so it actually, when I came to this epiphany one day, when I was, when I kind of, I didn't yell at my kids, but I, I got irritated with my kids and frustrated with my kids because, you know, in Filipino American households, our dishwasher's not like american households where you actually wash dishes in filipino houses it's dish storage <laughs> so so <laughs> which is true you have this this beautiful maytag right It's, you know $1000 machine and it's it's a $1000 storage right so we wash all of our dishes by hand and you know of course being asian we eat rice three times four times a day and you know it the rice it gets sticky right so it sticks on the plate and if it dries on there Oftentimes, it hardens, okay? And I remember one of my kids, I told the kids about one of my kids to wash the dishes. They wash the dishes. They put it in the dish dish rack. And then later on in the evening, I use that same dish to have my meal, right? But there's pieces of dried up rice. And of course, I get angry, right? So I get mad. But then I realized this. I said, you know what? I told them to wash the dishes, but I didn't show them how to wash the dish. And, and think about this, right? You know, you got the scouring, but you got the sponge. One is a soft end, one is a scouring pad, right? Now, you take your soap, you put it on the, the soft end, you, you wipe the dish, you soak the dish, okay? Now, most people, they just rinse it. But if it's got sticky rice on there, you use the, the scouring pad side and you scrub off whatever sticks on that surface, right? Makes sense. But an eight-year-old kid, a 10-year-old kid, they may not have, I mean, even a 20-year-old kid or a 30-year-old kid, they may not have. Capacity, or maybe they do have the capacity, they just didn't really think about it, right? That okay, well, I'm actually cleaning it and you know it should wipe off, right? And you would think that that's common sense, but but again, you shouldn't assume. And this is what I had realized that people are thinking the way you think. And once I came to that epiphany, once I came to that realization that it was actually my fault, that I need to be accountable, I need to stop blaming other people for what I did not show them, but expected of them. Does that make sense? And once I came to that realization, boom. <laughs> so yeah, anyways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's a really good story. You know, obviously I live out here in Thailand now and it definitely took me a little while to figure out, oh, the rice does stick on place <laughs> because you know, growing up in America, it was like bread all the time. And out here it's rice all the time, and it's totally true. You know, I'm thirty plus years old and I was like my girlfriend's like, uh the dishes dick isn't clean that what's
1: going on. So you've been through it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah.
0: So so uh for example, what are what is something that you think is always important to show your staff in terms of developing them?
1: Well, Number one, right? So before, and I and I tell you this, I'm going to tell you my instructors from before. So the way that I I, I I and I was very lucky, you know, a lot of a lot of my former staff members had been with me a long time, so they they were with me during fight team training, which is you know at, back in the day it was two three hours every single day, it was just a grind, right? And they would hear me yell ad nauseum to do certain things, and you know it would it would just be. You know, this, you know, just like it's just monotonous, you know, training over and over and over to get that muscle memory in, uh, to keep developing and refining those skills and over and over and over and over again. And, and, you know, the way we teach the rest of the general classes is a, is, is a very, very different approach, right? Because the, the general population would get bored with that. But what it ended up doing is my former fighters knew exactly what, what I meant in regards to how I want a technique performed. So it was easy for them, therefore, to teach almost verbatim the way that they learned from me. So it was very easy to impart that knowledge because they had been pounded in them for years, you know, several hours a day for years. Right. So I was very lucky that I had that so I could tell them, OK, here, this is what I want you guys to do. And then, you know, I'd say, let's say, let's say, go, go and let's work on a kick. You know, I want uh, kick, defend, return, same side, da 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 da, and I want you to be able to explain why it's better to return on the same side rather than the opposite side, and blah 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 blah. So they would get it; they would to- totally understand my fight principles, my fight concepts, and it was very easy to teach the crowd, okay, uh, or the you know the the, the students. Um, but then over time, you know, those guys went on to do other things; they went to uh, you know uh, other career opportunities. And I started having I was faced with a situation where, OK, I had less of these guys that had been through the grind. Now, what do I do right now? How do I teach them You know, what could be very, very esoteric to some people, pretty in-depth uh, for some people, skills and knowledge? And what I did is I said, OK, well, you know what? You know, I broke it down. And this is actually the way I teach, right? So instead of giving this long combination, like let's say a jab, cross, hook, leg kick, if you teach a beginner that, they're going to be focused on that leg kick. They're not going to be focused on the jab. They're not going to be focused on the cross. They're not going to be focused on the hook. They're going to rush through the jab, cross, hook to get to the leg kick. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it totally applies to anything that you try to teach, right? Or you're trying to impart. So people are going to try to, you know, they're, they're going to think of the last thing you you told them to do, <laughs> if that makes sense. And so what I did is I, I said, OK, I need to break it piece by piece. And so I, what I ended up doing is doing more staff training. Instead of fighter training, I ended up doing more staff training. I separated because before my staff training was the entire staff.
0: Mm-hmm. So then
1: you had the front desk people trying to, you know, w- we're listening in on Matt, Matt issues, you know, not Matt Lucas, issue, yeah. but Matt, you know, being on the map, right? So, you know, going, you know, and, and so, so they would get bored and it wasn't relevant to what they were doing. So I would break up the groups based on what was relevant to them. That seems intuitive. That seems natural at the time it did. It wasn't to me. And so as soon as I did that, that created more focus time within, within those particular groups or those particular area of staffing that were responsible for the front desk or responsible for student interaction or student uh, learning, I guess. And that helped, number one, and by uh, separating that group and then giving focused training, teaching them how to teach. Because before, it was, I, you know, I, I assumed that everybody knew how to teach because they were with me so long. Well, But there's more to it than 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 that in teaching. It's not just yelling at a bunch of people, like the old school way. It's more, okay, you have to look at the different learning styles. So then I started going into the psychology of teaching, started breaking it down into here is how some people learn, they they learn through, you know, visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory. And you might say one thing, but they may, you know, because of the way their brain processes thing, they hear another. So you have to demonstrate it from various angles. You have to take a look. If they're not getting it one way, maybe you're not communicating it in the way that they need to hear it. And so th- that I started breaking that down and started teaching my staff that, and it did wonders, mm. if that makes sense. And I did the same thing to my front desk, right? How do you interact with people? How do you speak with people? You know, when they walk through our doors, and so I started breaking down each component step by step. I started teaching the jab of personal interaction, and then later the cross, and then later the hook of personal interaction. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And obviously you've been successful with it because, uh, you know, you have multiple locations, which is really rare for the Muay Thai industry. Uh, What is it like running multiple locations? And why did you initially decide to go that route? Most people just have, you know, one gym.
1: You know, that, that's a great question, Matt. So when we opened our first one, uh, First Valor here in Stockton, it was at a time where it was the Great Recession. So I, we had I had moved back, we had moved to Hawaii, from Hawaii to the East Coast for my wife's medical residency. Uh, and then, you know, when she was done, we were looking to come back toward the West Coast or Hawaii. And we came to back to California to Stockton, uh, where my parents were at. And at that time, Stockton was had the biggest foreclosures in any state in the United States. It had the, the highest rate of foreclosures because, again, that was this was 2011 that we moved back, and it had always had some of the highest crime rate. Um, people laughed at me. You know, I literally had five or six people saying, "That's not going to work here." You know, you need to go more closer to the Bay. You need closer to you know to to San Francisco. It's not going to work out here in the Valley. People don't have money. People are all da 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 they're not going to take this serious, you know? And, and I said, well, you know, I, I, you know, that's okay. I'm going to come back. And the reason that we came back to this area is because when I was a kid, I got in a lot of trouble and, and I didn't have this outlet and I wish I did. And so I knew that this, this city had so many good people, but they did not have you know, it's a, it's a blue collar. It's, agriculture, it's the Isan of California, right? You know, a lot of great fighters out here, but it's the Isan. There's not a lot of opportunities. It's agricultural. And I mean, you're from Northern California. So you, you understand this, the layout of the land in this area. Um, but so, so I said, you know what, I know I've got to do this. And and so I set up shop mm-hmm. and it, at first it was just family and friends and it just grew and it grew and it grew. And, you know, in order to, scale, I needed to, to get more education. So I actually went to different you know, industry conferences and symposiums and, and uh, educational seminars to get a better understanding of how to approach this as a business. And uh, I was fortunate because we grew within a year, we grew pretty quick and we kept growing and we cre- kept growing. And eventually what ended up happening was I had staff members that that uh, were getting a little bit older, and they they needed, you know, better career options in order to support themselves and their families. And I, you know, otherwise I was gonna I was gonna lose them. You know, if, if I didn't provide something for them, then they would either open up their own gym or they would work, you know, in a totally different industry. And and the talent that I once had would no longer have. Right. So so the the, the second branch that we opened. Uh, what we call it Midtown, but it's basically downtown Stockton. And, and again, Stockton, uh, always constantly rates as one of the top 10 per capita crime, you know, crime, crime areas in the United States. And, and that area is a very underserved population. And so I got the place for a very inexpensive price is right underneath the freeway underneath the I-5. Um, and I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to create an opportunity for, um, you know, one of my employees or a couple of my employees and give them more hours, and I also want to be able to provide opportunities for families in that area. You know, from blue collar working class families that couldn't afford to do many other other activities, other than you know putting them in a, in a in a a situation where their son or daughter are not going to be involved in gangs and in drugs or be on the streets uh, and do something productive or be bullied by, you know, gangs or influenced by drugs, if that makes sense. And so I wanted to do this more of as a community outreach. And so we opened that. I really didn't expect any profit of that whatsoever. Well, lo and behold, within a year, it started becoming profitable and more profitable and more profitable. And we just, you know, again, implemented business systems. So when I do look to grow, I look to create opportunities. It's not to say, okay, I want to make more money per se. Now that's important. That's a very important component of it, but it's more of like, okay, we have to, you know, create more opportunities for our own team, but opportunities for people who otherwise would not have them and could succumb to being a product of their environment. Mm.
0: Yeah. That's uh, always a really admirable mission. And, Definitely something I admire about you. Um, one of the things that I think has helped you or that you have helped with a lot is growing the Muay Thai business community. Uh, you know, just general people's understanding of business now is a lot more. Uh, can you talk about some of the seminars you've done and why you started doing the business community?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um You know, what I find with most Muay Thai people, a lot, most Muay Thai people um, at one point were, this could be a generalization, but I think a lot of, a lot of Muay Thai people started out in other martial arts. And as those other martial arts learned to become businesses, um, the quality of what they were, you know, the martial arts that they were providing became diluted. And dare I say, you know, in many terms, it became McDojos, Right. And so I think a lot of people were jaded by the the business, um, the business aspect of running an academy, running a gym, okay? And so they started, you know, kind of, you started having this counterculture to that. And if you look at, you know, the growth and development of Muay Thai, you know, you, you, you had a lot of people that were the counterculture people of, you know, at least in the United States society, but you could see it all over the UK, you can see it in, in, in Australia. That's changed, obviously, right? But if you look at, you know, all the early pioneer Falang's that were going to, to Thailand back in the 90s, you know, again, those are kind of like the, I wouldn't say outcasts, but the rebels, so so, so to speak, pioneer Falang, I guess. And, and at that time, it was kind of the counterculture to these, you know, um, eight-year-old black belt factories, you know, that, that, that were popping up and still exists, unfortunately, right? And so there's this negative connotation that you're making money. Then you must be a McDojo, You're not. You're not making quality. But what they don't realize, what they fail to see, is that you know. And you and I had this conversation many a time. That Muay Thai is a sport, and a sport is about money. Yes, is it a love of the game? Sure. But in Thailand, it is a business, right? It's a way to put food on the table, to have a roof over the head. Now there are people that do it for fun. You know, you, you talk to Koban and Koban Luke Chao Tong, will say, well, you know. My parents didn't want me to fight. I wanted to fight, right? And there's many other fighters like that, too. But for the most part, it's more economics. And what Americans don't realize is that it is a business. And so, you know, in their pride to, to, you know, be counter to what a McDojo is, they say, okay, I'm just going to do this because of the love of the sport. And what ends up happening? They work two or three jobs to support their gym. They they do everything for their their fighters. They if they're losing money. They might lose their relationships because they're spending all their time and their money at their gyms. And you know, quite frankly, the sport will never grow because it's stuck in obscurity, right? Because you have all these people that are living in this counterculture. And so, you know, again, what do they say? If you if you if you want to be successful in business, you just have to find a solution to a problem or a perceived problem. And what Muay Thai can provide is just that. It can provide resolve. It can provide so many benefits, you know, other than physical. It could be emotional. It could be mental. It could, you know, it it could be trying to prove something to others or prove something to yourself, you know, at least in the Western world. And so it provides all these solutions. And if you are going to be there and you're going to invest all your time and invest your money and take those risks of renting out or leasing out a space and outfitting your gym, with 15, 20, $30,000 worth of equipment, then you should actually make fair profit. You know, this is a capitalist world. And so what I, what I realized, I quickly realized was, dude, the sport will never grow if people don't know how to run a business. So that's where it basically started. And actually, it started even before that. It's you know, Even before we had the first Muay Thai Business Academy, or what we called the MBA, and even before we had the Muay Thai Business Summit, which you know differed than the MBA in that the MBA was more nuts and bolts of how to run a business, how to find a location, how to train staff, how to give an intro lesson, how to charge, how to have a CRM or a customer relations management system that'll help you better organize your clients and your potential clients and even your past clients. Right. Um, that's a more of a nuts and bolts course. When you, when we flew you out for the Muay Thai business summit, that was more with, you know, experienced business owners. And it had a more of a variety of topics for people that had, you know, were more veterans in the industry of Muay Thai, I guess. Um, so, so that that's where it started. It actually started with the Muay Thai youth academy. Um, Actually, it started with the YDL. So I'm sure this is going to segue in here somewhere. Hopefully it's not going in tangents because it all comes full circle. But back in 2016, when when we came back from the first IFMA Youth World Championships in Bangkok, um, we quickly realized how far behind we were to the rest of the world when we see the level of development of other countries and their Muay Thai programs, especially with their kids program. You know, if you look at the United States, the at the time, now that things are changing pretty quickly, at the time the average age of a beginning Muay Thai student was about 20, 21 years old, right? Um, yeah. You know, you know, much much later in life. And in Thailand, of course, that's somebody that's already considering retiring or, or has been retired, right? With two hundred fights, um, here we you know we were starting late, and so what I had, you know what we looked at was okay, let's maybe have a a youth league, and and I attended an event, and I'm not going to say what event it was. Back in 2016, it was down in Southern California, and it was supposed to be semi-contact. And they had these two kids, an eight-year-old kid who was a beginner looked like he was he was coming out of his training, out of his dad's garage, more looked more like a boxer, you know, the way his stance was. And he was going up against maybe a much bigger kid, maybe 10 years old. Uh, you could tell that, you know, this kid was much more experienced. He knew how to wrap his own hands. He had Hayabusa gloves and sheen guards that were weathered. You know, they look like they've been, you know, well, well sparred in over the years, and um, they ring the bell. The bigger kid comes out there and just freaking pummels the 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 smaller younger kid and beats the crap out of him. Just takes him, you know, you know, punches him in the head a bunch of times, snaps the head kid's head back, and this is supposed to be a beginner, you know, uh, uh, light contact event. Kid then grabs the smaller kid, starts. Bombing him with knees to the to, to the midsection with no chest protector, the, the 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 smaller kid just hits the ground. He bowls over into a fetal position, crying. At the same time, where this bigger kid is jumping up and down, and all of all of that that bigger kid's friends are screaming, "Yeah, you effed him up! You effed him up!" And I was thoroughly disgusted, you know, and, and I was you know yelling at the refs, like, "Dude, you got to stop this!" But by that time, it was already too late, and. The feeling of disgust that I had, especially as a father, right? even if you weren't a father, you know, just seeing that it's terrible as martial artists, we should be protecting the weak. We should not be destroying them, right? We should be helping them. And and instead, this kid just destroyed this kid, other kid's spirit. This kid's now traumatized for life. He's going to heal from those bruises, but mentally and emotionally, that kid will never heal. That kid will go into the rest of his life being Probably scared and weak, or he might become a bully. Maybe this will, you know, turn him completely around. He'd be pissed off, and then he's going to now try to do that to what he experienced, just because he felt bad about himself. And that's, you know, that's the vicious cycle, as we all understand, right? And so, when I saw that, I'm saying, "Fuck this shit, dude." Excuse my language. I said, "Man, fuck this shit. We need to do something about it." And that's why we created the YDL. We'll talk later because I know that's one of the questions about what that is.
0: Yeah. Why don't we uh, hit on that right now? Because it is something worth talking about. And it's something that, you know, it's how the business community emerged. Uh, but can you explain what the YDL was, how it did things differently, um, and how it was structured?
1: Yeah. So the first thing you asked was how, okay, and what it is, what what the YDL is, and how it was developed. And, you know, the why was exactly what I just said, you know, was, you know, I saw this terrible mismatch. I saw more, you know, this exploitation of kids, so to speak. Right. And I also saw that the way that the other countries developed their Muay Thai program for the youth was more akin to the way that we develop kids for football or baseball or basketball. Okay. Uh, It wasn't a fight. It was a sport. Russia, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, these Eastern Bloc countries that are considered the powerhouses of Muay Thai, at least at IFMA, right, Were are approaching it more as an athletic endeavor rather than an angry brawl, rather than a fight. And that's the first thing that i recognized in 2016. I'm like, oh, dude, this is totally different than what's done. And then when I came back to California, it confirmed it. And so I said, you know, fuck, dude, we need to do something about this. So that's when I created the YDL. And and I said, well, you know, we have to do certain things because, you know, obviously kids are going to develop at different stages. And so what I did is I implemented a lot of things that I was already doing in my own gym. You know, most Muay Thai gyms that are probably listening to this are really good. They understand how to technical spar and this and that. Uh, But the old school way of most gyms, at least coming from a lot of traditional backgrounds, and yes, there's probably still a lot of Muay Thai gyms are like that. But you have more of like the king of the hill attitude, where you got this one guy that's beating the crap ever out, out of everybody else. But you do, you already see it in Thailand. You know, it's everyone's got to get work in somehow, some shape or form. And what I did, you know, when I started having our kids spar, when I started uh, implementing a youth program at my own gym, was I said, "Well, you know, it's tough because you have different ages, you have different weights, you have different maturity levels, right?" You know, if you look at the way that I break down my, my kids' classes, and it's uh, it's more structured to the way that you know the, the the school system is. When you have preschool, you have kindergarten, you have you know elementary school, junior high school, high school, so on and so forth. So I break it down because you know the students can only digest a certain amount of information in and in, in only in a certain way. And what what I realize is that you know it's not only physical, um, but it's also uh, the maturity levels that make a difference and the way the traditional tournament or, you know, show or promotion, the way that they match is based on age, height, weight uh, experience. OK, the hard part is in a very small pool of you know, uh, competitors, that's very hard to find. I mean, even to this day, you know, it's hard to find an A-class or open-class kid with, you know, so that's why we're traveling all over the world to try to find competition because there's simply not any more competition in the United States for these kids that have 30, 40, 50 bouts, you know, in the United States, right? So they we, they have to try to travel internationally. Well, you can't always do that. So in Thailand, you can because there's 50,000 active boxers, Right. At any given time. And yes, they, they they match them with, you know, that guy, that kid might be, you know, they size them up and they'll say, okay, well, you you can go with him, you know, that type of thing. I get it. You know, they could be 10, 10 pounds different, they could be five kilos different or whatever. But they can do that, one, because those kids out there are training for different reasons than kids out in the Western world. Those kids have already, you know, proven that they, they can get in there and they can do something for the most part, right? That they have a certain athletic ability. But in the United States or even in anywhere Western country in the world, most parents put their kids into these programs because they want them to develop confidence, right? And if you have them sparring somebody that's, you know, I mean, you might have a kid that is, you know, you might have two kids that are nine years old. One kid is four foot one, but 110 pounds. And another kid is you know, nine years old, but five foot six and 110 pounds. You see where I'm going with this? And it's an obvious mismatch. And obviously one person is not going to develop the confidence that the other person that has an advantage has, mm-hmm. right? And you'll see things where that kid the other kid that might be four foot one may, you know, even out those odds as he ages, as he goes through puberty or whatever, they may end up being the same height. And the same weight eventually. But at that stage, at nine years old, it's all over the place. Okay. And so, what I had recognized quickly recognize is there's no way that you can have a good experience. That's why most Muay Thai gyms in, in Western worlds, at least before, had very, very small programs because they didn't know how to deal with it. Because most parents didn't want to see their kid getting their heads bashed in, right? They didn't want to see their kids bloodied up and crying and da 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 da, right? They could they could do equestrian, they could do, you know, whatever, right? What we did is we said, okay, we're gonna match them. And this is one of the key things that help differentiate the YDL from everybody else. Okay. What we realized, what I realized was this the way that they score internationally and in Thailand in particular is very different than the way they score in the United States. The United States, as we all know, you know, it's all fragmented. It's across the board, depending on the sanctioned body and and the athletic commission of a particular state, you know, most part it's either boxing, MMA or kickboxing commissioners or, uh, uh, sanctioning bodies. And so they're creating their own rules based on no substantial education from anywhere. It's just them making up the rules. Okay. Well, this works in kickboxing. So we'll add knees and elbows, and those would be the rules. So everybody has their own set of criteria of how things are scored rather than the way things are scored maybe in Thailand. And so here people are looking at volume and aggression, whereas in Thailand they're looking at certain attributes, at least initially, attributes such as balance, position, composure, right, your ability to defend, your ability to to, to counterattack your accuracy. So all these things, these attributes are more looked at, and then they could look at the point process. And we'll talk about that a little bit more where you're looking at more qualitative versus quantitative, right? And it's actually a pretty deep conversation. But what I realized was this, I said, you know, the fact of the matter is 99.9% of the United States are beginners. Even if they said, that, oh, yeah, I fought in this and I know, whatever. I should be, you know, the, the only judges that you should have are people that fought. Well, who the fuck did they learn from? What did they fucking learn? You know what I mean? It, I think it's the most asinine, bullshit, stupid, dumb fuck fucking statement I've ever heard. If you don't know the goddamn rules, I don't care how many fights you have. You don't know the fucking rules. You don't know the scoring criteria. Then how can you judge a fight? Right. So, OK, that again, this is probably another conversation in itself. So I'll go back to the YDL. So what I, I did is I said, well, look. I said Meyer. I saw Steven Meyer, Dr. Meyer is part of the United States Point-I Federation, is one of the head officials. He has tons of experience, super smart guy. I said, "Look, here's the problem. This is what I want. I want I want to have a score report, not a scoring, not a not 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 a scoring sheet, not the must system. It's got to be a score report that now creates direct feedback for the participants, right? So I know this is long and I apologize. And I, I, I hope, you know, if people that are listening, uh, you know, continue to listen because I hopefully you're, you're going to mine out some gold from this, but you, it gives you a sense of how different this is, right? So what we do is we, we created a score report that looked at those attributes and instead of looking, you know, like a clicker, like in amateur boxing back in the day, right? Instead of saying, you know, clicker, you know, in terms of how many punches you had, you know, volume you had, it's more like, okay. The first thing people need to look at is what is their balance? You see it all the time. You see all in, in the amateur shows. People just throwing these haymakers or throwing these unset up low kicks or whatever and, you know, turning around, losing their balance or whatever. And right off the bat, a, a judge in Thailand could already know that this guy is going to be sloppy. This The guy is not going to know what he's going to be doing and that the, this guy has no sense of accuracy because he's just throwing blindly in the air hoping something's going to hit right? What I said was, okay, let's do this. So Stroopmeyer had suggested, let's do a traffic light system. What do I mean by that? So there's red, there's yellow, and there's green. So if you look at an attribute, so let's say balance, okay, you watch the bout, and if the kid has great balance, then you give you, you circle green. That kid got a green light for that particular attribute. If it was okay, if half the time he was balanced, half the time he just kind of fell to the side or let's say he did a switch kick and then fell forward right uh he might get a yellow light or a yellow box meaning you need to work on it it's pretty good but you need to work on it then the red light means that you really need to work on it your balance absolutely sucks (laughs) right Mm -hmm. and and the beauty of that was you, you ended up educating everybody the whole goal was not to offend anybody, because if you tell people that's been doing what they thought was Muay Thai for the last 20 years, and you tell them that this is Muay Thai, they're they're gonna be pissed, they're gonna be offended, they're gonna say, no, no, motherfucker, I've been training Muay Thai, I've been fighting Muay Thai for 20 years, right? As always, if you'd like to follow me, you can do so on
0: Instagram, MattLucasMuay Thai. I always respond to messages there. I also have the website, matt-lucas.com or email me at aperiodmapperiodlucas@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thanks to all the people that have supported me so far, sharing the podcast, leaving reviews. If you'd like to leave a review, that would be super helpful. You can do so on the iTunes store. After years of hard work, studying, and being in the game, I published I'm Fighting in Thailand, a guide to the sport in the motherland. is a Muay Thai encyclopedia. It goes over scoring, matchmaking, picking gym, fight styles, gambling, Muay Thai culture, and more. It contains a series of interviews with long-term expat fighters, including Michael Savas, Willie Whipple, Lisa Brealy, Angela Chang, and others. It is a great guide, educates, and helps guide careers by helping save fighters from costly mistakes. It is a definitive guide and is available on Amazon as an ebook and in print. So go check it out. I'm fighting in Thailand, a guide to the sport in the motherland.
1: Okay. Not really knowing, but what happened is by doing this, you give it to the coaches and I don't know how many times, and they, they go back and they work on this stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many times coaches have come up, shook my hand and say, dude, this is brilliant. I, you know, I never considered these things and I didn't tell them what exercises to do to improve balance or their timing or their accuracy or whatever, but they found a way because they knew because they didn't see these things before they found a way because they were good coaches to make those adjustments in their training regimens to make their athletes better so that each time, every single session, every event, they their athletes improved, <laughs> right? There was now a metric to now follow and guidelines to follow that now helps them internalize what the rules are rather than memorizing the rules. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. And, um, you know, obviously the YDL has played a big role in developing a lot of youth athletes. It just seems like in the last few years, you know, the youth um, did very, very well internationally uh, in IFMA and other organizations. But what, what do you think is sort of the state of Muay Thai right now in the States and how can it be improved uh, both in the USA and internationally? I know you've hit on a couple of really big sort of underlying problems, business scoring, youth development, but what is sort of the state of it and what are some of the driving things that like a potentially new movement might need to do?
1: Yeah. You know, I, so I, what what I see right now, because at least in the United States, and, I, and, and the United States represents probably the biggest opportunity for Muay Thai growth in the world ever, right? With 330 million people, with the UFC just leading the way in combat sports and becoming a public company, right? There's so much opportunity. There's so much talent. The problem is, is that things have been done the way they've been done for the last 20, 30 years, whatever it's been, you know, from its, you know, uh, evolution from kickboxing, right? And, you know, right or wrong or whatever, um, it is what it is. The, the the big issue is there's lack of clarity, okay? And I talked about this in a, one of the Muay Thai business forums that, that, I, that I host, uh, and I talked about it on a Facebook Live, you know, I, th- I talked about three C's to be successful, the three C's that can either make or break you, and those three C's are one clarity, two, congruency, three, consistency. And one thing that I notice, at least in the United States, is that there's a lack of clarity. There's a lack of vision as to what you're trying to achieve. Everybody's just trying to do their own thing. And I know that there's been organizations that have tried to to pull everybody together. But, you know, if it's ego, if it's money, if it's a combination of both, it's very difficult to get everybody on the same page. And as such, again, you know, everyone's just kind of making up their own rules. And when they do that, when they're making their own rules, when they fight internationally, they're in for a really, really big wake-up call. You know, yeah, they can go to Thailand and they can get a first-round, second-round knockout, but we all know that that's more of an economy rather than a real bout, right? Uh, and, and But people don't. They, they put it on their Instagram, you know, assuming that that was legit. Uh, you know, again, they, they're thinking that they're doing well you know, what we're doing here because of a first round, second round dive that they got in Thailand. They saying, Oh, well, I knocked out a Thai, So it must, must be legit. Right. So, so that's the problem. It's not, we're not going to be able to change that. Certain organizations have done a great job in trying to you know, get that exposure and that education out. However, the fact of the matter is that's just trying to put a bandaid on something that's broken. Right. And it's never going to be, be able to, you, you're never going to be able to fix it. So there has to be a, a total paradigm shift In in regards to the approach, you can't just do something the same, but a little bit different. It has to be completely different. It has to be a completely different solution, okay, to a problem. Not, okay, here is a half assed way to provide a band aid to a broken arm, right? I mean, you just can't. You have to now, you know, provide a bionic arm, (laughs) right? If that makes sense. And yes, a new movement is definitely definitely, uh, necessary in this type of situation. So, uh, I don't know if I answered your question, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that the way things are now, it's very difficult for people to take the sport seriously when people, you know, the public, the general public to take the sport seriously when, the people that are participating in the sport really don't know what that is. They don't have the clarity of what that is. They don't have congruency where everybody is speaking the same language and nor do they have the consistency to carry it out through every single event. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. And, you know, one of the questions I was going to ask is like, how can fighters and athletes develop in the states? And it's really, really not clear um, how they can develop because there's no a clear message. There's no, uh, you know, if one person, if say like, you know, I'm a fighter in America and I want to have a career, I take one path and my stablemate might take a completely different one. There's no congruency in how uh, the athletes are developing over there. Uh, So it's, there's a lot of issues going on. Uh, What, what do you see as some of the potential ways that Uh, athletes and coaches can develop in the states?
1: You know, there there has to be a true development league, right? It, it, you know, not just the youth, because what you're going to find is people really want to learn what the sport is. They just don't know, you know, they don't have a resource to really turn to, right? So there has to be an ascension model, that gives them direct feedback. There has to be you know, uh, a development league that provides continuing or ongoing educational courses, whether that may be judge and referee course. And I, I even told everybody, I said, don't call it a judge and referee course because people may not be interested in doing that. You may want to position it as a scoring course, how to win at Muay Thai, right? Because time and again, you hear it in America, they'll they'll say, or the United States, I hate to say America, right? The United States of America is that, oh, don't leave it up to the judges, right? It, it's it's the most backward Again, inbred thinking ever. If uh, several things, okay. Everyone thinks that, that you should just knock somebody out. It's a sport, okay. Everybody loves to see the dunk, the slam dunk. They want to see Michael Jordan do a 360 reverse dunk back in the day. But Michael Jordan had to become a well rounded athlete. That, that was his MO initially. But in order to be, become the greatest ever, or arguably the greatest ever, he had the to know how to you know, develop his team and knew how to pass the ball. He knew how he had to know how to rebound the ball, offensive and defensive. He knew he had to know how to you know shoot from the three point. He knew that everybody was going to defend at, at the bottom of that hoop. So he had to now try to draw people out and, you know, hit from the three point in order to now to now draw the defense out to the three point line to now to go for a layup inside. Right. He had to know how to, to, to work on his free throws because he knew that as he drove to the basket, people are going to foul him. And that's a prime opportunity to score there, right? The same thing in football. Like, everybody loves to see the Hail Mary. They love to see somebody throw that ball 90 yards and somebody catch it and run it in the end zone. But the fact of the matter is you still need to run the ball. You still need to get two yards to get toward, you know, your your first down, right? You still need to, to do the short pass. You still need to do the field goal if you're too short, if you're, you know, your fourth and – 10 or whatever, you you know, whatever. And the, the defense is too strong, but you're 30 yards from the field goal and your punter can kick it in there and you get that three points. You still have to accumulate points because points... The end game of a sport is to win. And the way you win is through scoring. Same thing with baseball, right? Everybody loves to see this, this magic home on out of the park. You still need to bunt the ball. You still, you know, to try to get that, that runner from second to third base. You know, there's all these strategies that people forget in the United States that it, it is a sport. They only see Muay Thai as a fight. And that's where it, it makes it infinitely harder to create a true sport when people are thinking of it as a fight right and and that's number one and so again some of the first language that i started using when i you know in the last five years that everyone now is using is you know you don't refer them as fighters they're athletes have them have you know that nomenclature is so important for them to understand and internalize then to see themselves as athletes first right and then you know, yes, you got to fight your way through it, but you're an athlete and you need to treat yourself. You need to treat your body. You need to eat right. You need to to run. You need to skip. You need to do the bag work. You need to spar. You need to clinch. You know, you need the drill, blah, 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 blah. And until that's, you know, addressed, then it will just be status quo. It'll be the same thing that we've been doing over and over and over again. But at the same time, what ends up happening is there's this lack, you know, of, yes, people have these promotions. Yes, they have these tournaments. But the tournaments, although they're getting bigger, the quality of the tournaments aren't necessarily getting better, meaning you're just having people that, you know, are coming from MMA, they're coming from Krav Maga, they're coming from Taekwondo that want to do a Muay Thai event. They're not necessarily, you know, Muay Thai people. And so that's why you see this, you know, there's a big complaint in the Muay Thai community in the United States is that they're, they're, the complaint is, okay, C class is full, but then B class is half and then A class is even, even a, a quarter of that. But that's a true reflection of that the, the number of true Muay Thai gyms in America, isn't it? You know what I mean. So the, what you have to do is you got to get that exposure. You yes, you have to reach out to those people, but then you provide a league that provides an ascension model, a clear path to growth. If you look at sports, if you look at you know you look at uh, baseball, okay? We start off with T-ball, then you go to uh, Little League, then you go to Babe Ruth, then you go to high school, then you got college. Then you could play minor leagues, unless you unless you get direct, drafted directly into major leagues, or you just you know you end your career at college, or you end your career at baseball. Okay, to so the foreigner that goes to the United States and tries to watch baseball, it's like watching paint dry. They don't know what the hell they're looking at. They don't know the strategies. You're watching a three hour ball game, and you're like, dude, this is stupid. Why are Americans watching this, right? But for those that have played baseball, they're like, fuck, this is awesome. Look at the strategy. Oh, man, you see how they got the bases loaded? Oh, what is he going to do? Is he going to try to knock it out the park? Is he going to try to do a pop fly so they, they can tag on third and run into home, right, and win the game because it's now that, you know. It's in the ninth inning. You know, they're down in the ninth inning and blah, 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 blah. So if you understand the sport, you're more going to support it. And again, if you look at the MLB, if you look at NHL, you look at NBA, you look at the NFL, these are the most lucrative sports in the world, right? They understand it. And what it stems from is a developmental process that's in place, that has been in place for the last 50 years that Muay Thai does not have. And if we had something like that where people, even if they do not go, from a lower class, even if they just paid pop Warner football, or high school football, or you know high school baseball or or little league, they understand the rules. And now those people will go to the ballpark and spend you know two hundred dollars for the weekend or five hundred dollars for the weekend watching a game at you know the giant the giant stadium, right? Or football, whatever it might be, they'll spend that money. And what Muay Thai has wrong is that they're so dependent on ticket sales that now. It, 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 it can it can become a shit show because you have people that will say that, hey, you know, I need this title fight uh, and I promise that you'll make X amount of money essentially buying the show. Right. And, you know, that's why I like the tournaments. It's just that 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 uh, that unknown. And, you know, you can't necessarily imp- you can't influence it like you, you you would influence a local show. And the local shows are so dependent on seat sales that they are susceptible and it's inevitable for them to be on the take so to speak right so it's flawed the model is flawed and the only way that again that can change is a paradigm shift in doing things and thinking of things and and, and 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 implementing things and having an ascension model for growth regardless of the age and development and stage of an athlete
0: yeah you've hit on some very very good points um we're just rounding down to our last few minutes so i don't want to Take up more of your time, you know. In the last few minutes, is there anything that you want to talk about or say uh, that you think would wrap things up, or you know, are important sort of nuggets for people to understand.
1: You know, again, there's so much I, I want to say and I could share, and uh, I, there's just not enough time in any podcast, I guess. Uh, but but uh, I think it's grow. I, I think it's growing. I think people have you know. The energy and the enthusiasm, and I think that you know having tournaments like the USMTO, like the TBAs, like the WKS, and even the IKF, and you know I think it, it's positive. Uh, but what happens is they cannibalize each other because there's a lack of of a pool of athletes to choose from. The same thing with local promotions. And the only way, you know, again, they what do they say that that the rising tide lifts all boats? You have to create something where everyone's going to benefit. Okay, every, every, everyone, not only the the gym owners, not only the promoters, not only the tournament promoters, but also the industry like Combat Corner, like Muay Thai Attic, like In Fight Style, people that now are dependent on this industry for that business to thrive. It now creates all these other opportunities. And again, kind of like the reason I opened up my gyms was to create opportunities. There has to be something that creates opportunities for everybody. You know, and I'm not going to say, let's be Kumbaya. And I think people have tried to, let's say, let's be Kumbaya, my Lord, and try to get everybody together. It's never going to fucking happen. What you have to do is now, you know, provide maybe a neutral entity that's apolitical that provides a platform for everyone to grow. But people have to be open-minded and receptive to it. And once they are, they're going to see the light and it's going to change Muay Thai for the better around the world. fucking it.
0: Yeah, I definitely believe in that. And I really appreciate all the opportunities you've helped create for the sport. And for me personally, you know, the podcast wouldn't be here without you and having, you know, helped me out, uh, especially initially, just, you know, giving a little bit of a push to the podcast. Um, So I want to thank you a lot for doing that, Patrick. And I really look forward to seeing what happens in the future.
1: Oh man, you're welcome, bro. I'm, I'm so proud of you. I just remember sitting on a side in and side soy in Bangkok when, when, when beer was supposed to be illegal because it was a special, I'm not going to go into that, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but I'm so proud of how far you've come. You know, you've made so many inroads, you've educated the entire world of what's going on. I think people, you know, have this impression of that, you know, Muay Thai and Thailand is a bunch of Shaolin monks and, uh, you, you know, I mean, yes, there are monks, but again, it's a sport and there's a good, there's a bad, there's an ugly side of it. And I think that you're, you know, helping uh, elucidate, you know, these facts and, and and exposing people to what the sport really is. And, and it's, a, it's a thing of beauty. So I'm proud of you, man.
0: Thank you, Patrick. And uh, look forward to hearing from you soon. Where can people follow along with you or, uh, you know, your social media or how people can uh, see about Valor?
1: Uh, you know, I I really haven't been developing it lately. Um, you know, you I mean I have got my personal one, but I'm not quite sure what you know you're gonna see on there. It's it's Patrick Valor. I think it's Coach Valor, Coach Valor. Uh and then if you plug in Valor Training Center, you can go in or Stockton Muay Thai. You can go to Stockton Muay Thai, and then we've got Elk Grove Muay Thai. You can just, you know, plug those in. You can get an idea of how I'm running my business and how things are structured. If you want to hit me up, you know, you're gonna see me at the tournaments, you might see me at the shows, and you know, please say hi. I'd love to talk to you.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much again, Patrick. Uh, I look forward to talking to you more in the future. And, you know, maybe one day we can do another podcast because you definitely have a wealth of knowledge that you're very, you know, generously able to share.
1: Thank you. Thank you, man. Thank you very, very much for having me out here. And hopefully people got something out of it, but I hope you know letting, letting me uh, speak about what's on my mind. So thank you, brother.
0: So that was a really, really great interview i thought one of the really interesting parts was patrick talking about how it's a sport and not a fight and how sort of looking at it in terms of a fight has sort of held muay thai back from growing you know it turns into a little bit of a macho thing also scoring becomes inconsistent you know people should be able to rely on the judges for the Verdict for the decision. It'd be like saying, you know, you can't rely on the judges when you're poll voting or when you are playing soccer or any other sport. It's a little bit ridiculous that you have to have these, you know, colossal wins in order to show that you actually won. So it was really great for me to talk to him about that. I'm excited to see him And what he's developing with his new projects Uh, he's always up to something so definitely stay tuned and if you can make sure to follow Patrick he's very active on Facebook and a little bit on Instagram we look forward to hearing more from him and his future projects soon thank you as always for listening And once again, if you like this show and if you like the content, it would be great if you could share, uh, leave a review on iTunes, and really support the show and what I'm doing here. If you'd like to reach me, you can follow me on Instagram at Lucas Muay Thai or email me at a.mat.lucas at gmail.com. As always, this has been On Fighting in Thailand, the best news and analysis Covering the economics and infrastructure of Muay Thai, I'm Matt Lucas, journalist, commentator, and ex-Muay Thai fighter. Make stronger fighters, make stronger people.